0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with last night's Republican presidential primary debate, at which almost all the candidates denied global warming with one calling it a hoax, while agreeing to support Trump for the 2024 presidency, even if he were convicted and in jail. Joining us to discuss a party that has become a cult is Geoffrey Service, the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Centre in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. Then, with Trump booked this evening in the Fulton County Jail for his attempt to steal the 2020 election in Georgia, we'll look into how the more Trump is indicted, the more his base rallies to his support. Joining us to discuss the threat to American democracy when one of the two parties embraces authoritarianism and no longer accepts the results of elections is Jennifer McCoy, a professor of political science at Georgia State University and a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she focuses on political polarization and democratic resilience in the United States and around the world. She recently was a core fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Budapest, Hungary, and is the author most recently of Polarizing Polities, A Global Threat to Democracy. Then finally we'll go to Kiev, Ukraine, on the country's Independence Day, to speak with Taras Kuzio, a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev-Mohyla Academy, and Associate Research Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. He is the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, And most recently, Russian nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian war. And we will discuss the local reaction to Putin's public assassination of Prigozhin and how the U.S. does not want Ukraine to win the war against Russian aggression. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Jeffrey Service, who is the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Service.
1: Good to be back, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. And what did you make of last night's first Republican presidential primary debate the expectation was that whatever happened, Trump was going to win the debate simply by not being there, being the kind of shadow over the thing. But on the other hand, you know, some of them didn't do too badly. Pence and uh, Nikki Haley seemed like they were you know, sensible, I guess, in comparison to a lot of the lunacy from the others. How did it strike you?
1: I mean, there was a surreal element of the debate for me because Donald Trump does so loom over the Republican party. Uh, He's this inescapable presence. He's miles ahead in the polls. This is the most dominant, I think, any Republican presidential candidate has been at the primary level uh, within the history of the polls being taken uh, at this stage of the race. Um, And yet his name wasn't even mentioned until an hour into the debate. Uh, So, like I said, a bit surreal. But having said that, I think you're right. I think the debate was revealing in other ways. Uh, But I guess I would say that I thought that although the likes of Mike Pence and Nikki Haley acquitted themselves well, uh, they seem to be pitching their candidacies toward a Republican party that no longer exists in any meaningful sense. Um, And in that regard, I thought that It only added to the surrealism that they're really invoking this Republican Party uh, that has just left them behind and gone elsewhere.
0: And I guess that was reflected by the crowd that booed uh, anybody that was mildly critical of Trump.
1: I thought the crowd was very much representative of the Republican Party base.
0: Right. So the most amazing thing, though, was when they were asked to show their hands in terms of who would vote for Trump even if he were convicted and presumably in a jail cell in 2024, only two didn't put up their hands Governor Christie and Governor Asa Hutchison. The rest of them put their hands up. So,
1: Although it I was mean, interesting to note that Pence and uh, Mike Pence, the former vice president, and Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, sort of looked around and saw the others putting their hands up, and so they somewhat hesitatingly put their own up as well. And also that Chris Christie blundered his moment by maybe scratching his nose and then trying to take it back that he hadn't really put his hand up. It it was a strange moment.
0: But it's completely insane, isn't it? I mean, do you really think that a candidate in a jail, and of course you you can go back to the 1920s, with the socialist candidate Eugene Debs, but he wasn't a, he wasn't running in a, a major party like the Republicans are. I cannot believe that the American people would vote for somebody in jail, even somebody as beloved by the base as Trump
1: is. Well, you know, uh, the other political parallel you could point to was James Michael Curley, uh, who was a populist in Boston and was for many years the mayor, and going to jail only boosted his uh, electoral appeal with his supporters. And I think it's the same dynamic for Trump, you know. His indictments, maybe even his jailing, uh, are only further evidence that he is the candidate who is most threatening to the Democratic Party and to the liberal establishment writ large. Uh, So that means that uh, his supporters have to redouble their support for him. And and do everything they can to make sure that he gets uh, reelected.
0: So today's theater in uh, Atlanta, where he gets booked, um, that's just a continuation of him. He he likes this, right? This is all helping him, as far as he's concerned, with his base, with the the sense that he's being persecuted, and these indictments, all four of them so far, are political. You know, the Democrats can't beat him fair and square, so they. Have to throw these uh, lawsuits against him. So that's that's the card that he's playing, and he's going up in the polls, right?
1: I mean, Trump has observed correctly that with each indictment, his poll ratings go up. Um, and today's circus with the Georgia uh, surrender and booking, I think, will only add to uh, his appeal with the supporters. Now, the only exception here, um, I don't think Trump will mind that much that he'll have a mugshot taken because, uh, again, he will use it to project strength to his supporters. But I think he's a little bit worried about being weighed and having that weight total broadcast to the world. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's the only thing that he's really worried about as far as this episode is concerned.
0: Right. So uh, back to last night's debate, the, what really struck me, and I've, I've, I couldn't believe I was hearing it, but I, <laughs> I was, for, unfortunately, there was this young guy called Alexander Diaz who asked a question on video. He's with the Young America Foundation, which is a conservative youth organization. And he said that young Republicans are concerned about the future and they care about climate change. and young Republican voters uh, apparently in a 2022 Pew poll found that 73% of Republicans aged 18 to 39 thought climate change was an extremely uh, serious issue. But talk about getting a short shrift from the people on stage. First of all, DeSantis torpedoed the question so they didn't even get to the point of showing showing hands of who, who was for it. And it eventually, as, as things sort of went back and forth with all the shouting. The only person that actually acknowledged climate change is real was Governor Nikki Haley. And then this peculiar character, Ramaswamy, uh, just was ranting about how it's all a hoax. By the way, only a few months ago he was saying climate, climate change is a serious issue. So what do you make of this guy if he's such a dishonest panderer?
1: And so just... on, on the first question, I think Vivek Ramaswamy uh, was the most authentic representation of MAGA conservatism uh, on stage the previous evening. And I expect that he did himself uh, a great service with his performance last night. Uh, as crazy as it might have seemed to you, to many other outside observers, I think that he gave the crowd and by extension, the Republican base what they wanted, which is pure, unadulterated Trumpism. Uh, Uh, And and his claim that climate change uh, is a hoax is part and parcel of that. I mean, of course, it's completely hypocritical. He used to believe completely the opposite just a few months ago. But, you know, this is the nature of what politics has become, particularly on the Republican side. But I also agree with you that I think the one moment that I probably will remember years from now uh, about this debate was that dismissal by so much of the field uh, of this young republicans concern for climate change and you're also completely right that young republicans although they have you know, radically different opinions on particularly cultural issues than young democrats really are genuinely concerned about global warming uh, and fearful for a future which we already see beginning i think with our extreme weather um, and the republicans in dismissing his concerns um, were also by extension dismissing his generation uh, and this is a big problem for the Republican Party because young people are disproportionately leaning Democratic. Uh, and, you know, in the past, this has not been unusual. Young people often lean left before they grow up uh, and lean right. But it seems to me that the Republican Party is doing everything it can to make sure that these young voters remain lifelong Democrats. And demographically speaking, that bodes really poor outlook for the Republican Party in the future.
0: But they're also driving women away, aren't they, with their stance on abortion? I mean... They doubled down on particularly Pence and others. They, by the way, they were lying totally. I mean, they were saying that the Democrats uh, want abortion on demand all the way up until birth. I've never heard anybody say that, but that was their, their position was so, so extreme and to the point where, again, Nikki Haley tried to kind of steer them back to being more reasonable, but she got shouted down.
1: You know, um, I think that there were any number of lies told uh, with forceful emphasis on the stage last night. Uh, This, I think, points to the danger of allowing these kind of debates, even without Trump, to take place in real time without fact checking. Um, But as far as the issue of abortion is concerned, you know, the other problem that the Republican Party has and uh, keep in mind that I'm speaking to you as a Republican is that as it has become more of a personality, uh, a cult of personality than uh, a normal political party, uh, it has also taken leave of reality. And the reality is that even a third of Trump's voters uh, are pro-choice. And Trump in that sense is a more sophisticated politician than most of those up on the stage last night because he's never been forced into a hard line on abortion. Whereas Ron DeSantis was rather easily stampeded into passing a six week ban in Florida which is a state where, you know, there simply isn't that kind of support for that draconian level of restriction on a woman's right to choose. And we've also seen in state after red state where voters have any say on the matter, they actually reject the hardline position on abortion. We saw it most recently in Ohio uh, just a week ago. So there's just this level of fantasy indulged in by many of of the candidates on stage last night that they can simply do what they want, that they don't need to actually take into account the wishes perhaps of a a significant majority of the country. Um, And this is, you know, again, part and parcel of the Republican Party having become, for the last decade at least, a a majoritarian party, a party that thinks it can rule and do exactly what it wants without paying any heed to the democratic wishes of a majority.
0: And indeed, uh, most women who are pregnant don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Mm -hmm. So. But the one thing that did happen, I think, in terms of shifting the polls, and obviously Ramaswamy was a nobody yesterday and became a somebody last night, even though his ideas were appalling and frightening. The one thing that I thought happened was that Tim Scott, who everybody thought was a benign choice for those who couldn't stand Trump, he didn't seem to do very well. But DeSantis really tanked, I thought, Uh, I mean, (laughs) wanting to invade Mexico. I mean, this guy is beyond irresponsible. What did you think of his performance?
1: Well, the idea of uh, invading Mexico to stick it to the drug cartels is, I think, actually becoming orthodoxy uh, among MAGA ranks. So again, as crazy as it sounded coming from the mouth of DeSantis uh, to outside listeners, uh, that's almost an old hat proposition within Republican circles these days. Uh, But I agree with you that DeSantis didn't do his cause any good last night uh, because he really needed to have a breakout performance if he was going to arrest his slide in the polls. Uh, And instead, what was revealed anew last night is that DeSantis is not a good debater. He's not a good public speaker. He doesn't really like human beings that much. Um, And in some sense, he's in the wrong business. Uh, So anyway, I think his limitations were showcased last night. Uh, and even if he didn't do himself active harm, he at least didn't give his campaign the boost that it desperately needs at this point.
0: But in terms of not liking human beings, I mean, Ramaswamy is backed by Peter Thiel, who's also close to Elon Musk. And they all seem to have that Silicon Valley libertarian idea that democracy is incompatible with capitalism and I mean, one of the reasons they seem to have f- affection for Putin, which which Ramaswamy uh, indicated last night, is that Putin, apart from running a mafia state, also you know, has a country that's essentially run by oligarchs. So these American oligarchs probably want an American oligarchy. And Thiel doesn't have any children. He has a bunker in New Zealand where he can escape to when all hell breaks loose. I mean, I think... There's a dystopian quality to the Elon Musks, the Ramaswamy and the Peter Thiels of this world.
1: Well, uh, Elon Musk has had children to make up for Peter Thiel's lack of children, uh, (laughs) and then some. So I suppose it all balances out. Right. Um, But you know, I I suppose a a contrarian might say that the possibility uh, that this country will reelect Donald Trump, perhaps even from a prison cell, suggests that there are flaws in democracy that need to be addressed.
0: Or maybe the whole country needs a sort of psychiatric intervention. <laughs> well put. So speaking of which, did you catch any of the uh, Trump alternative with uh, him and uh, Tucker Carlson on X formerly Twitter, which I think most people couldn't find it, but it was a real snooze. I mean, Trump was ranting about heat pumps and electric vehicles and water, and Tucker Carlson kept trying to talk to him about the possibility that there's going to be civil war and violence, which Trump sort of didn't fully embrace because he's not entirely stupid, I guess, but he sort of took it up to the edge that, yeah, maybe it's going to happen. But Tucker Carlson kept repeating and revisiting all the way to the end of the interview that there's going to be a bloody civil war and that they're going to kill him. They're going to try and kill him. If they can't put him in jail, they're going to try and kill him. I mean, that is pretty bizarre, don't you think?
1: (laughs) Well, that was quite striking that I thought uh, Tucker Carlson's almost obsession with the idea that Trump was going to be assassinated uh, kept coming up and up. Uh, and I agree that Trump is a sufficiently cunning politician that he didn't take the bait. Uh, but I think the mere suggestion of Carlson putting it out there, you know, gave Trump the, the opening to say that Democrats are savage animals, uh, that they're evil people who who don't obey the rules and therefore Trump himself has to break the rules to save the country from such creatures. Uh, But having said that, I thought that both Trump and Carlson were very much off their game last night. Uh, Maybe this suggests that uh, Tucker Carlson not being on Fox News uh, with a nightly show, uh, instead being relegated to this flaming ruin of Twitter that Elon Musk has given us uh, has really caused a deterioration in his skills. And maybe it also is the fact that since Trump isn't doing much in the way of debating or even campaigning that he also has lost more than half a step.
0: Well, the one thing that uh, I thought was totally surreal but not surprising was when Trump talked about January the 6th. He said, just to quote him, "'January the 6th was a very interesting day "'because they don't report it properly, "'but people in that crowd said it was the most beautiful day "'that they'd ever experienced. "'There was love and unity. "'I have never seen such spirit and such passion and such love, "'and I've also never seen simultaneously and from the same people "'such hatred at what they've done to our country.'" That's not what I saw uh, (laughs) on January
1: the 6th. Yeah, I I don't see how anyone could buy that unless you also buy the idea that we only hurt the ones we love. Uh, (laughs) You know, Trump has a real interest in rewriting history uh, and is, in effect, saying to much of the nation who you're going to believe, me or your own lying eyes about what happened on January 6th. Um, But, you know, again, this is part of the cult. Um, and Trump is interested in showing his power to get people to buy into his version of events. In some ways, that is the hallmark of the authoritarian personality.
0: So just in closing then, Jeff, uh, you're a Republican. Do you see a future for your party? Do you th- see your party ever returning to the party of Lincoln, to the party of your father and grandfather?
1: Uh, I don't, to be honest. Um you know, uh, I think Trump has really remade the party in his image, and I don't think there's any going back. Uh, frankly, watching last night's performance of, of this this undercard, uh, all of them in the shadow of Trump, I, I was really reminded of that quote from, uh, from Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar. Uh, Why man he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus, and we petty men walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. Uh, there is no reviving that Republican Party. But on the other hand, you know, it could well be that the party that Trump leads is going to be so, uh, is going to have such problems in winning national elections, that it will be forced into a kind of anti-democratic party. And either it will succeed at the cost of American democracy, or uh, it will break up and be replaced by something else. Um, so, you know, I feel like there's a lot of small c conservative positions, which are unrepresented in the political debate by either party. And one hopes that in democracy, there will be a, a political vehicle for those concerns and, and those needs uh, and, and the national priorities that they reflect. But at the moment, uh, I think we're going through a very unpleasant era in our political history. And I can only hope that it is over <laughs> sooner than we think it's going to be over.
0: Well, Jeffrey says I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure.
0: And again, i am speaking with Jeffrey Kabberservice, who's the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, From Eisenhower to the Tea Party. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the threat to American democracy when one of the two parties embraces authoritarianism and no longer accepts the results of elections. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jennifer McCoy, who's a professor of political science at Georgia State University and a non-resident scholar at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, where she focuses on political polarization and democratic resilience in the United States and around the world. She recently was a senior core fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Budapest, Hungary, and is the author most recently of Polarizing Polities, a global threat to democracy. Welcome to background briefing, Jennifer McCoy. Thank you. Well thanks for joining us, Jennifer. And I don't know whether you watched last night's presidential primary debate, but I think the most telling kind of takeaway from it was that for example, Chris Christie made a stand against Trump by saying, you know, Trump said he was going to suspend the Constitution and I'm a former U.S. attorney and a, and, and a governor and that's simply against American democracy and I can't stand for it. And he, also, he also defended Mike Pence, the former vice president's stand for democracy on January the 6th, which others on the stage did not want to do. But Christie got booed when he talked about suspending the Constitution and he said, you know, you, we're in a free country, you're allowed to boo, but you're not allowed to suspend the Constitution. And what c- seems to be inescapable is that this was a Trump crowd. He wasn't there, but he he won the debate in his absence. The Republican Party is all in for him at the moment. Arguably, it's become a cult. So I guess the question is, how can democracy, since this is something you study, democratic resilience... How can democracy survive in America when one of the two parties embraces authoritarianism and no longer accepts the results of elections?
2: It makes it very difficult because we do have a two-party system and so people don't have, in reality, um, more choices at at a feasible level. There are small third parties, but uh, they're considered often wasted votes. So it's very difficult. I think we should keep in mind, though, that When you think about the actual number of people who are supporting former President Trump, uh, who has been, you know, indicted for uh, breaking the law and, and, and really threatening American democracy, we're talking about actually relatively small numbers of people. Even if it's a majority of Republicans, you think about the number of voters Um, And the number of people who identify with political parties are, first of all, only it's around 30 percent of the population identify with Republicans and another 30 percent, more or less, it changes, you know, uh, from time to time, but with Democrats. And if you just take a majority of the Republicans, um, then we're talking about 15, you know, up to maybe 75 percent supporting Trump. So 15 percent. Total up to maybe twenty percent of the population, and so it's not the extremely large numbers that we get the impression of when we keep hearing. Um, you know, seventy-five percent of Republicans support Trump sounds like a very large number, but not among the entire population. And so, one answer is for more people to um, to vote and participate. In the process and then for those who do not identify with Republicans or Democrats they usually lean one way or the other but they are they are crucial uh, voters because they're not as uh, loyal to a party above all as those who claim an identity with a political party so there is the possibility to defeat Trump, even if he becomes the the candidate, which you know right now he seems very far ahead, um, and with the support to be a candidate, even if he's convicted, which was a shocking thing in the debate last night, that there were only two of them that said they they wouldn't support him as candidate if he were convicted uh, before the election.
0: Well, in the 2020 election, Jennifer, Trump got 83 million votes. Biden got 8 million more but Biden only won by 44,000 votes in the electoral college in the key swing states so it was very close 44,000 votes is incredibly close so you don't think yeah. he's a threat is that what you're saying that he
2: No I'm not I'm not saying he's not a threat but you're saying how you know is democracy doomed and I'm saying if Americans all um look at the situation and act, then it doesn't have to be doomed. That that's really my point. Right now, we we have such a large number of people who do not participate, and it's understandable too. I mean, they're they're frustrated. They're just disgusted with politics, the the hostility, the vitriolity of politics, and the gridlock in Washington. You know, it's not surprising. But they they need to care. They need to feel empowered to be able to act and to participate in order to protect this democracy. So, yes, it's a threat primarily because not, again, not because it's a huge majority of people or even a majority of people who would support him, but because of our institutions and because of the Electoral College specifically and the way the parties are divided across states that gives in the Senate and in the Electoral College, an advantage to the Republican Party, when it is a minority, it can still become a majority. So that's the, a key problem, is the institutional setup of the United States, which is unique among other democracies in the world.
0: Well, with 70% of Republicans not believing that Biden is legitimate president and they believing that Trump won the elections, which was something that he hoisted after the January 6th insurrection and it metastasized into a core belief amongst Republicans. And as you as you also observed last night, they will vote for him even if he's convicted and he's in jail in 2024. And when you say that a lot of people don't vote. That's a, a continual problem, isn't it, in the United States? At best, you yes. get what sixty-five percent turnout. So, yeah, that's what's to cute. what's it's to suggest that? The, right, but what's to suggest that those, you know, thirty-five percent would actually vote?
2: Um, I think it's up to all of us, the media, um, academics, others, to continue to talk about and. Ex- Um, inform about the threats to democracy so that people are aware and also to help them feel empowered and to talk about other countries and uh, to see, okay, look at what's happened in other countries that have had some democratic form of politics and have now lost it. Um, Venezuela had a democratic government, two party system just like the United States for 40 years and has now lost its democracy. Um, India has been a long-time democracy and it's eroding. Um, Hungary was a democracy after the fall of the Soviet Union for 20 years and is now um, eroded. So, you know, we need to – that's partly what I've been doing is pointing out it can happen because people have felt complacent in the United States that we're so special – that it can't happen here, and to point out that it can actually happen. And it is happening to some degree. I mean, our our democracy is backsliding to some degree. So so I think this is, um, you know, it, it's up to all of us to help to encourage and to empower, you know, the rest of the population. There's one other point, and that is that when the hearings happened with the congressional um investigation into january 6th you know some minds were changed when people actually saw the testimony and the video that were shown if for example the trial stays in georgia and isn't moved to the to a federal um court the the trial for which trump is coming to my city atlanta today to um be arrested. Be and, uh, and get <laughs> a mugshot, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? Exactly. Along with Meadows, who um, also
0: got a mugshot today, right?
2: Exactly. If if it stays um, in Georgia, that trial uh, next year, and uh, it's it's likely to be televised. That is, that's the norm in Georgia. It, you know, it's possible to be televised, and so people may also have a chance to see again the evidence, you know, in a court of law, that may also change some minds. But I think you're right that, you know, many minds are not going to change. Those who are most committed to Trump, ironically, see here a judicial system that is working and is, is uh, you know, working toward holding accountable someone who has, you know, been alleged to have threatened democracy and attempted to overturn an election. And that person, Trump, and his allies are trying to turn that around and say that it's the judicial system that is coming after them for political vengeance. Now, in other democracies that have eroded around the world, in Hungary or Turkey, Venezuela, the judicial system is itself corrupted and does, in fact, go after kind of honest Democrats to eliminate them as potential rivals in elections. And so it's abso- actually the reverse. So their judicial systems can be used. They are weaponized, whereas here it's not being weaponized. It's still our judicial system is still intact. It hasn't yet you know, been corrupted to the point it has in these other countries. And so I find it very ironic that they're using Trump and his allies, including you know, within the Republican Congress, are saying that our judicial system and Justice Department are being weaponized against an innocent person, which is actually the reverse of what's happening.
0: But you were recently in Budapest at the Institute for Advanced Studies, and Orbán's yeah. Hungary is a model that Trump and his followers are following. There's, a, there's an effort underway at the Heritage Foundation, and including Trump's former staff members like Stephen Miller and company, they already have a blueprint, following Orban's model to take over the judiciary, to completely capture the federal bureaucracy, and to do what Stephen Bannon said: deconstruct the the uh, administrative state. So they have plans underway, there's no mystery about what Trump wants to do. He has such an affection for Putin, who just publicly assassinated Prigozhin. And I think the writing's on the wall, isn't it? At this point, the 2024 elections, if Trump wins, it may well be the last American election. And I don't think that's hyperbole. Uh,
2: I, I think that is a possibility. It is a possibility, and that is why um, I and many other political scientists are working to, as I said, to um, inform people, to alert people, to show what can happen, what has happened in other countries, um, and, and to to bolster our systems that, you know, so far they have not, you know, they, they have weakened, but they have not fallen, and, um, and, and, it's, and it's really up to us to protect them.
0: So fascism is not in the American political DNA, but it, it sort of has raised its ugly head in places, and particularly in the, in the late 30s here. But what, what is this new phenomenon? Have we ever had a, a cult leader capture a party, and, and the, uh, one of the two main parties, and turn it into a cult?
2: No, not at the national level. We have had kind of demagogic leaders at state levels you know, like uh, Huey Long in Louisiana. Um, so we have had it at more local levels, but not at the national level. No. So this this is new.
0: Well, and <laughs> it's incredibly alarming. And I must say, that was my takeaway from last night. You know, the crowd that was booing the the few people up there that made a stand for democracy. It's quite frightening. And. Uh, I hope you're right that there's a chance that the sleeping giant of democracy can be awakened in the United States.
2: Yes, I hope so, too.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Anytime.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer McCoy, who's a professor of political science at Georgia State University and a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where she focuses on political polarization and democratic resilience in the United States and around the world. And she recently was a senior core fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Budapest, Hungary, and she's the author most recently of Polarizing Polities, A Global Threat to Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Kiev, Ukraine to discuss the local reaction to Putin's public assassination of Prigozhin and how the U.S. does not want Ukraine to win the war against Russian aggression. <music> Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Kiev in Ukraine is Taras Kuzio, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev's Maholya Academy and an associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. He's also the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukraine War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Taras Kuzio.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, and it's Independence Day today in Ukraine, and of course, we've just learned that Putin has publicly executed Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, along with his deputy, Utkin, and how is that, what's the reaction in Ukraine to that news, because President Zelensky has made it clear that Ukraine was not involved.
3: Well, I mean, um, the the reaction on the streets and when you talk to people and journalists and, and others is is that what did you expect? Um, this is a mafia state, and Russia was was defined as such um, as early as 2010, so a long time ago. Um, Any of your listeners can find that in the WikiLeaks uh, cables, um, U.S. diplomatic cables. Um, And so these are criminals arguing amongst themselves. We all know the old adage in the West where we say there's no honor amongst thieves. Um, I'm surprised that Prigozhin, who was killed, uh, believed any deal um, that he struck with Putin to be safe, as it were. That I'm surprised about, Um, but um, no, I mean, you know, Putin is one of those leaders who's a coward. And some of us found those kind of people at school when we were growing up. Um, Cowards were always those who were pushy, but then when you push back, they ran off. And Putin exactly is one of those. Um, When the Wagner uprising took place or mutiny, took place. Putin fled from Moscow when Russia invaded Ukraine. Zelensky did not flee from Kiev. He stayed there. Um, So um, Putin um, is he's a product of that sort of criminal uh, transition to whatever has been created in, in, in Russia. He is has a criminal kind of past. I mean, he's He's stolen so much from Russia. So it's not surprising completely. What is more surprising is Prigozhin either arrogance or naivety or a mixture of the two. Maybe he has some compromising material in Russian Compromat on Putin that he threatened to release if he was killed. Um, So, no, it's not surprising. Um, This does have a direct kind of knock-on impact on how we should look on Vladimir Putin. Because for Ukrainians, and this is this is one of probably the most common reaction today, it's that, how after this can you distrust anything you negotiate with Putin? He will agree something today, and he'll break it tomorrow, just like with Prigozhin. Br- so, I mean, that probably is one of the biggest lessons that we should all learn from this murder.
0: Well, unfortunately, the first Republican presidential primary debate took place last night. And it's pretty clear that some Republicans on the stage uh, actually support Putin, and others are fairly on the fence. The only person who really made it, oh, actually two people made a strong uh, case in defending Ukraine former Vice President Mike Pence and former UN representative Nikki Haley. But what's the feeling in Ukraine about American support for Ukraine?
3: It, it's a very difficult question. I think most people, most Ukrainians don't really want to talk about it at the moment because they, they, they it's something that's in the background. They're fearful about it. Um, and it's not something that they really want to talk about. But we have to be a bit cautious about this, and I say this because every interview I've been on and most writing about this tends to ignore this factor, is that in in many respects, Donald Trump was actually better for Ukraine than than Barack Obama. Barack Obama was pretty bad for both the Syrians and the Ukrainians. Syrians we know about. He... He kind of fudged the red lines, ignored them and allowed the Syrians to carry on uh, doing war crimes, Syrians and Russians doing war crimes and even chemical warfare against the population. In the case of Ukraine, he vetoed the sending of weapons to Ukraine, military equipment to Ukraine, um, and completely ignored American commitments under the 1994 Budapest, Budapest Memorandum, where In return for giving up nuclear weapons, Ukraine had the third largest nuclear weapons in the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, America, Britain and Russia gave Ukraine security assurances. But Obama ignored those. Trump, ironically, did not veto the sending of weapons to Ukraine. Yes, Trump had Trump and Ukraine had problems towards the end of his presidency when he tried to strong arm Zelensky into supporting his um, his uh, investigation into the Biden family using Russian intelligence documents. But um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a difficult picture. I, I actually think that um, I, I'm not too worried so much because I think that um, if a uh, A a Republican candidate uh, wins the elections in in the US. That um, once in power, they will be be quite different to actually the election rhetoric. Right, but what what
0: about Donald Trump coming back? Isn't that what Putin wants? That's his best play to get out from under a war that he's losing. It
3: is, it is. But I've always, I've always thought the Democrats in the US were pushing that. A bit too much. I'm not a. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump in any means at all. But I think it would be wrong to claim, as some Democrats have, that Donald Trump is a Russian agent. No, he's a useful idiot. The Russians or the or the former KGB officers who now run Russia are very good at playing on people's narcissism, and Trump is a narcissist, um, and so he's a he's a useful idiot for them um and maybe they have some blackmail on him but at the same time how do we explain despite that potential uh, control over trump through that blackmail um how come trump um, did not veto the sending of military equipment to ukraine so um, i also think that it's very easy to counter this uh, Republican populist uh, argument that we need to focus less on Russia and more on China. The reality is there is no separation between Russia and China. The West is faced by an onslaught by four anti-Western hegemonic countries, North Korea, Iran, China, and Russia. This is not separate countries. This is a, a group of countries who are working together against the West and who see the war in Ukraine as a war against the West. And so the idea that you can somehow, you know, separate Russia and China or park Russia and work on China is ridiculous. And also, I think the Repu- the populist wing is easy to counter as well by the fact that only, I think this was Lindsey Graham said to, said that only some, it's less than 5% of the U.S. military budget is actually spent on supporting Ukraine. And in return for that, with not a single American soldier killed, in return for that, Ukrainians are destroying the Russian military. Um, and therefore, instead of the, the doomsday scenario where... Uh, the U.S. will be fighting a war on two fronts against, say, Russia and China. Um, the the Russian military machine is being destroyed uh, by the Ukrainians, and so the U.S., if it had to, say, for example, over Taiwan, would therefore only have to face one potential adversary, and that's China. So, I think um, I I I I know the reasons why there should be caution but i I'm, I'm not so concerned myself um, at
0: the moment anyway at least but Terence kuzio one of the things that i've been trying to investigate and i've been in touch with people close to general budanov the head of uh, ukrainian military intelligence he's been complaining all along about the quantity and quality of the weapons that mm-hmm. have been sent and they get sent months and months later. Uh, mm-hmm. the, U- the U.S. and NATO set a red line, and you're telling oh, you can't have a missile. Then, then you can't have tanks, and you can't have planes, etc. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they, after months, they then decided to reverse themselves and allow mm-hmm. the weapons to be sent. Meanwhile, Russia is able to build up its defences. This is mm-hmm. no way to win a war. The no, suspicion no, no. is that the U.S. government doesn't really want necessarily want Ukraine to win. Uh, because they're afraid, people like Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, are afraid of upsetting Putin too much and having unrest in Russia or perhaps a coup in Russia where you end up with somebody worse than Putin, mm-hmm. like uh, Petrushev, the national security advisor. So mm-hmm. what what do you make of that? those suspicions?
3: Well, I think the way to understand this is that there are two groups of countries in the West. There's a group which is out there, openly, um, which is saying that uh, both Ukraine to win and Russia to be militarily defeated. And those countries are Britain, four Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, three Baltic states, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Poland, the Czech Republic. Those are countries which openly say, besides the Ukrainian side, they say Russia should be defeated militarily. Then there are other countries, U.S., Germany, France, in particular, who say, "Yes, we will not allow Ukraine to be defeated," but they never say that um, we want Russia to be militarily defeated. The Biden administration has never said that, and 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 what they've what they've um, basically uh, undertaken is a kind of a middle position between negotiations and full scale dealing with Russia, full scale sending everything you've got and fighting Russia till it's militarily defeated. And this middle path has been shown, particularly with this counteroffensive now taking place by the Ukrainians, that this middle path of the Biden administration is a failure. And the Germans and French, particularly the Germans, are hiding behind the behind hiding behind the Americans on this question. You know, they're very happy to sort of hide behind their Biden administration on both um, the question of whether Russia should be whether our goal should be openly that Russia's military defeat. And of course, Ukraine's NATO membership. So I think the Biden here, therefore, we're not talking about populist Republicans. We're actually talking more about the Biden administration, which has a bit of a leftover from the very weak Obama administration. Um, The Biden administration, for example, at the NATO recent summit in Vilnius in July, um, a huge number of countries had come to support Ukraine's membership of NATO. Um, Something like 22 out of 31 members, uh, including even France, which had always been quite skeptical. But the Biden administration here was not in support. And we're not talking about Ukraine joining NATO uh, during the war. We're talking about Ukraine joining after the war's finished. And yet the Biden administration was against. So I think here, therefore, we need to focus less on the populist wing of the GOP, but more on, on how the Biden administration has got it wrong. Um, and it was interesting in the last week or so, I've been reading about how some uh, pro-Ukrainian Republicans in the U.S. Congress are saying, we're a bit fed up of this middle path of the Biden administration, and, and we should be actually, we have two choices. Either say to the Ukrainians, go for negotiations, or we, or we give everything we've got to the Ukrainians, and we say our goal is military defeat of Russia. Obviously, I support the latter. Um, and, um, and I think they're absolutely right, because this middle, this middle kind of path that the Biden administration has been doing, this tiptoeing, this drip feed, is, is, is a failure. It's been proven to be a failure. Um, and it's allowed, as you say, it's allowed the Russians to build up defenses. It's, um, it's allowed the Russians to kind of, in some ways, control the agenda when they threaten about um, nuclear weapons, which we know... Is a, is a is a is a a vacuous threat it's not going to happen and but sorry sorry just one last thing you asked you mentioned the 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 fear that somehow somebody would be worse than Putin after after him I'm sorry I'm I I, I find this a really odd argument because I I don't think that anybody in Ukraine would ever understand anybody to be worse than Putin this is medieval barbarism that putin has unleashed on ukraine and and i don't i really don't see that anything is possible that could be worse than putin so that mm-hmm. kind of argument i don't think really is 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 applicable
0: but taras i don't understand the logic of the biden administration i i believe that he defers a lot to jake sullivan and and tony blinken but at the end of the day You would think that Biden would understand that what Putin wants is Trump to come back and for Trump to immediately pull the plug on aid to Ukraine and perhaps even get out of NATO, which is the best thing that could happen to Putin. So here's Biden running against Trump for a second time, and he's playing into Trump's hands. I just don't get it.
3: Um, well, uh, I think the only way you can understand this is that power corrupts. And um, I agree with you that um, Biden at his age and his um, you know, not so great health um, should be actually leaving the stage and passing the baton to say a younger Democrat, maybe a woman, say, um, uh, rather than rather than we have the, this gerontocracy of two candidates, Trump and Biden, who are in their late 70s stroke coming on 80. Um, This kind of, you know, from somebody who has been following the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe for decades, this is a a bit amusing because it kind of resembles a bit the Brezhnev, then Chernenko, Andropov era of the early 80s before Gorbachev took power in 1986 um and um, and so yes i i I do don't understand that and um um biden biden administration is desperate now to kind of prove that um it's his policies to ukraine have been sound but i don't think they they are going to be successful because this middle kind of uh i think relatively weak position of of um, kind of drip, drip feed of weapons um, has not worked. It's simply not worked. Um, And um, and um, and this means that that the war will drag on instead of the war finishing this year in in 2023, the war will drag on at least till next year. And it means more Ukrainian suffering, more Ukrainian destruction, um, all because of Western um, kind of slowness and it, unwillingness to see the reality on the ground when the reality on the ground is that the anti-Western axis of four countries Russia, Iran, China and North Korea are they have declared war on the West I mean that's the reality and you need to wake up to that fact
0: Well Taras Kuzia, I thank you very much for joining us here today
3: Thank you very much for inviting
0: me And again, I've been speaking with Taras Kuzio, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev, Mohilovic Academy. And he's an associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. And he joined us from Kiev in Ukraine.